Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Tea and Murder, part book club, part interview show, all Agatha Christie. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy-Norman. So I am so delighted to have here on the podcast with me today, Jean Kwok. Jean Kwok is the New York Times and international best-selling author of Girl in Translation, Mambo in Chinatown, and Searching for Sylvie Lee, which was a Read with Jenna Today Show book club pick. Her work has been published in 20 countries, and she's been selected for the American Library Association Alex Award, the Chinese American Librarians Association Best Book Award, an Orange New Writer's Title, and the Sunday Time Short Story Award International Shortlist, among others. She has a story in the upcoming Marple book, and uh, we're going to get into that today. Welcome, Jean. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. It is such a delight to speak with you after getting the chance to not only read your work previous to this, but the Marple book that's come out and with her with 12 new short stories that were written by 12 amazing authors. Absolutely. Yeah. So first, we're just going to talk a little bit about your background with Agatha Christie before we start talking about how you became... Agatha Christie yourself. Um, tell us a little bit about your background with Agatha Christie's work and, and how you began reading her. Well, you know, um, it, 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 believe me, it's a real shock to me as well <laughs> that I um, have some you know, pretense to being Agatha Christie in some ways, um, because I uh, am a first generation Chinese immigrant. I didn't speak any English when I first moved to the U.S. from Hong Kong, and Agatha Christie was actually a part of my journey um, in learning English and achieving fluency. So I came over as a child, and I was, of course, too young to read her books then. But, you know, it takes years to actually master a language. And as I got a little bit older, I would make these reading lists of, you know, books that I really wanted to read 
to kind of just learn more about this culture um, and language that I was in. And when you're an immigrant, you know, there's this natural boundary that gets set up around you. Um, and very few things can actually penetrate this bubble that you wind up in, whether you want, you know, them to penetrate them or not. Mm-hmm. But Agatha Christie was definitely one of those things. Yeah, absolutely. She was just one of those things that could transcend those boundaries. So, you know, even I knew who she was. That's incredible. And when you say you were kind of reading her to learn about the culture, what what was your experience then reading her and being in, you were in America and she's, you know, a British writer. Was there any kind of crossover that you felt there where it was some things didn't quite fit or where you kind of put yourself in a, into maybe a different, a slight, slightly different culture for, for reading Agatha Christie? Actually, I felt really at home reading her because I was born in British Hong Kong. Uh-huh. So, you know, that was, those were the days when Hong Kong was still a British colony and so, um, you know, I the first English I heard was British English. Right. And, you know, the thing about Christy is, of course, she's so accessible. I mean, she's so, I think she's, her work, anyone can enter into those, that world and feel, you feel kind of welcome, don't you, when you enter one of her stories. Yeah. What, what do you think it is about her stories that are so welcoming? Well, I think that Miss Marple in particular is a very welcoming kind of a detective. And especially yeah. for me, because, you know, I was really poor um, and I would kind of sneak reading my Agatha Christie's while taking the subway to Chinatown to work in a clothing factory, wow. you know, which I did as a child. Yeah. Or, you know, at night before I kind of fell asleep on a mattress on the floor, I would, you know, have one of her books open, you know, with a flashlight until I fell asleep. Um, And to me, it was extremely, it was just like mind blowing to have uh, this female detective written by this woman author. Yeah. Is, are there any books in particular you remember as a child standing out to you? Well, I think one of them was a Caribbean mystery, which is wow. probably why I modeled my story uh, yeah. after that book That's, in this collection. That is so interesting. And I mean, we're going to talk about your Marple story called The Jade Empress um, quite soon. But in terms of your other writing, because you, you know, you've written novels yourself, do you feel that your work has been influenced at all by Agatha Christie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, I don't even know if I can say my work has been influenced, but mm-hmm. I definitely have been as a person. Yeah. You know, I was, a, yeah, I was a young girl when I started reading her and I grew up in quite a conservative um, Chinese family, you know, kind of male dominated society. And um Actually, the only expectation for me was not to grow up and be brilliant or, you know, go mm-hmm. to a great college. It was nothing like that. It was just kind of, you know, if you're lucky, maybe you can be a housewife and a mother and not have to work 24 hours a day. Right. Um, and then, yeah, to read Christy and to realize, well, probably she had the same expectations as well. Mm. And she just went and became the world's best-selling author. <laughs> yeah, just, just like that. <laughs> you know, I know. the whole world. Right? I know. It's incredible. And her output, I mean, when you look at how many books and short stories and plays she wrote, it's almost like intimidating as a writer. Um, to I mean, sometimes oh she was God. writing three Absolutely. books a year, which is outrageous. 
Um, yeah, they're all so good. Yeah, (laughs) I I think there are some that are better than others. To be honest, like for example, I don't really like the Tommy and Tuppence series, Um, Mm -hmm. but I do think when you look at the breadth of her work, how many of them are great is completely outrageous to me. It's just so incredible. Well, and, you know, in attempting to write a, a, a Marvel short story, you mm. do realize how very talented she yes, was yes. and how difficult it is to achieve the things she achieved in her work with such seeming simplicity. Yes. Yes. So let's talk about that. Tell me what it was like to take on the voice of Agatha Christie and to take on the character of Miss Marple. Well, it was a real surprise, of course, <laughs> to be asked. Uh-huh. I was like, me? Are you sure you really want me? Um, so that was, uh, it was just such an honor as somebody who, you know, I, I just never, ever thought I would be in a position to, you know, have such a great honor. And I think when you take on a project like this, you know that if you do not do this well, you will enrage thousands of people around the world. Yeah, right? thousands so, is an understatement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like there's so many fans and mm-hmm. there's so many who love her yes. and love her work. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And, she is beloved. Absolutely. Yes. And so, you know, you, the, I think the first thing is that they were very careful to find writers who were real fans. Yeah. Um, of Marple and of Christie. Yes. And, you know, that was certainly my approach when I came in, that the first thing was that this is not a Jean Kwok story. This is my attempt to write an Agatha Christie story. And right. anything, you know, that comes first. Everything else has to follow into, you know, that pattern. Right. Um, and, but, you know, but uh, so respect was the first, you know, and foremost, respect for the iconic character, respect for this legendary writer. But, of course, it's also an opportunity to bring a kind of modern sensibility yes. to this marble. Yeah, talk talk about that, because your your story is so modern in so many ways, but it really captures... Christie's voice as well, of course, and Miss Marple's character, I think, so perfectly. So tell me about how, like, bringing in your own values and your own modern approach to the story. Right. Well, so when I thought about writing Miss Marple, you know, because I've always seen her as quite an adventurous character. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in Chinese culture, we revere elderly people. So um, I always loved the way in her Stories, you know, she's you know, she's there's this ageism at play, yes, where she's underestimated because totally. she's this elderly little lady, right? Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was so outrageous because, of course, in in Asian cultures, you know, we look up to older people for their wisdom and um, their strength, and so on. So that was something I thought about. So I have always seen her as a very strong and smart, and you know kind of active character and I thought you know I would love to bring her to Asia in some way or you know bring her outside of England and so I went to um, the editors in charge of the Agatha Christie legacy and to James Pritchard her great-grandson and I said you know what do you think about the idea of um, putting Miss Marple on a cruise to Hong Kong and 
I really thought they would be like, oh, gosh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, St. Mary Mead. I mean, we don't, right, you know, she doesn't leave England very much, right? <laughs> but that's really going too far. Um, so, yeah, I kind of very tentatively approached that idea because I love the idea of a cruise. And I just love the idea of her heading off somewhere like Hong Kong, which is also, of course, in that time, a British colony. And right. so would fit very well, um, you know, within the Marvel universe. And instead of being hesitant, I mean, James was like, that's a great idea. <laughs> I love it. And oh. I mean, so that was wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. And he, he, he actually said, in fact, you know, we don't want to intrude upon your creativity at all. But, you know, if you like, you could actually put her in Hong Kong. That would be amazing. Wow. And so I thought, oh, my gosh, I feel so supported. Yeah. <laughs> That is such an incredible feeling as a writer to feel that your editors and, you know, the kind of the commissioning body is supporting you and is really just there to kind of receive the work. Um, and you can really see that throughout the stories and in, in your story in particular. I think that's really true. I think they were extremely supportive of us. But I also do think that, you know, all of the writers and if you look at that list, I mean, it's like oh, it's ridiculous. Of, I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, this super, super star writers, um, they uh, are doing this collection. But you can tell when you read the stories that I think every single writer subsumed their own identity. You know, you can can see who it is. Yeah. Yeah. You can see their voice and their values and the themes coming through. But actually, you could see everyone's main objective was to write an Agatha Christie Miss Marple story. Yes. And I think you can really see because, I mean, you've described so beautifully why you love Miss Marple. And I think you can really see that all of those writers adore her as a character and really um, were wanted to be gentle and wanted to be generous with their interpretations of her. I think that's I think that's just so true. And we I have to say the publisher was and the the editors involved in this project. I mean, they're they were a fantastic resource for mm. us because the people who publish Agatha Christie's work today, like they love her. They're like super, yeah. you know, yeah. avid fans. <laughs> big fans. <laughs> and, big fans. And they know, yeah, they know they know everything about her. Yeah. So that was for me in particular, that was really great because then I could talk through the story with the editor and say, well, you know, I was thinking of, you know, having the grand reveal happen this way or in a little bit of more quieter way. What do you think feels more right? And uh, it was just fantastic to have that feedback. That's so great. Um, what a, what an amazing process to get to go through and, and to be in such incredible um you know, uh, to be working with, or I'm not working with, but being working around these incredible writers um, and getting to read their stories as well must have been really, really fun. It was really, really fun. And, you know, of course, we talk to each other about them, too, when we're doing interviews yeah. and oh, other things. But, oh, my goodness, the twist is yours. <laughs> I was so scared by this. And so uh, oh, we really had a great time. That's so great. Um, And, you know, they gave a kind of general guideline um, for the stories so that they asked us to include a horticultural theme if we could. And if it could be inspired by a particular novel, then that would also be a plus. Um, But they did ask us not to change the Miss Marple, you know, 
kind of the facts of her life. You know, we weren't going to, we're not allowed to have her suddenly be married with grandchildren or (laughs) things like that, which I think was absolutely the right call. You know, we, we are working with respect within an existing framework. Yes. And and I also think maybe with other well-known characters, it's possible because I think sometimes details of characters are a bit sketchier. But my experience of Agatha Christie's characters, and particularly her two main characters, is that they are incredibly complete. And they have really mm-hmm. rich histories that are kind of communicated very well with v- very simply um, by Christie. So to take any of those elements away, I think, would be a disservice to the character. I think that's really true. And I think one of the things that you realize as a writer is that something that's very individual and very difficult to change, actually, is tone and voice. Yeah. And what you, you know, what you see when you read the collections that everybody fits themselves into Christie's tone and voice yeah. as much as possible. Yeah. It's really true. And and that's done, as you say, so with such simplicity, um, because it's it's so much about kind of, you know, word choice and recreating the character and giving a sense of place, which I think um, Agatha Christie always does really well in, in very broad brushstrokes. And um, in your story, you do that so perfectly. Oh, yes. Well, thank you. Well, she is, like I said, when you when you attempt to do something, you realize how very difficult it is yeah. to do what she does. But indeed, with her seeming simplicity, she can sketch a character in two sentences, yeah. you know, or a setting or a scene. Yes. Um, and she's always so funny. Yes. I find there's such, such dry humor, you know, these little comments yes. you know, throughout the text. Absolutely. And in fact, I, I always find in the a Caribbean Mystery, which is the book we're talking about today, um, Mr. Raphael, I think, is a very funny character. And um, from the way she describes his looks to kind of all these little snide comments he's making, um, he always strikes me <laughs> as very funny. And then in the, you know, there's a follow up book called Nemesis. And I think even the whole premise of that book is actually kind of it's part joke. Um, on his part, and obviously mm-hmm. part serious, which is that he wants Miss Marple to solve a crime, and he's already passed away. Um, but the whole mm-hmm. premise of it has kind of a, a jokey, in-jokey element to it. Um, so I think he's mm-hmm. a very funny character. No, I agree. And I feel like he's in some ways, like he's both a reflection of Miss Marple herself yeah. and a foil against her. Yes. Right? Totally. Because he, I mean, even the physicality of it, which is that he is semi-paralyzed. So when he kind of wants her mm-hmm. to do things, he sends her out like this, you know, like one of his hunting dogs or something. And she's this little <laughs> old lady, you know, who can also barely move around. But she's suddenly the physical arm of of this semi-paralyzed man. It's really fascinating. Yeah, I love it that Christy put him in a wheelchair. Yes. Um, so that because otherwise he could kind of overwhelm our dear Miss Marple and kind of take over, you know, but he, he's got this, I find he's got this kind of powerful presence, Yes, but he's irascible and he's, you know, he's very idiosyncratic. Um, But, but, you know, he still, and he's got a certain kind of power that Miss Marple doesn't have, you know, because he's wealthy and because he's a man, right? right? I mean, that's not 
state it explicitly, but you know yes. that that's a part of what Christie is looking at and kind of highlighting as, you know, that difference. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, yes, he's in the wheelchair. So Ms. Marple is the, is the one who has to be active. Absolutely. And I think this is a great place to talk about, just give a brief synopsis of the book that we're going to be talking about today, which is A Caribbean Mystery. Before we get into the synopsis, I'm just going to give a little background to the book um, so that people kind of know where it fits into the Christie universe. Um, So A Caribbean Mystery was published in 1964, and it was kind of a return to form for Agatha Christie after she had a couple of less than popular titles come out. It was published after The Clocks, which is a Poirot mystery, and then before At Bertram's Hotel, which is one of my personal favorite marbles. Um, It's a classic international holiday a hotel Christie book, and it's similar to An Appointment with Death, Evil Under the Sun, and any number of other short stories that you'll find for both Marple and Poirot. Um, a Caribbean Mystery comes towards the end of Christie's run of Marples, and this is really when she was like the most invested, I think, in Miss Marple, and it's really visible in the way that she writes about her in this book. It's also the preceding book to the sequel, which is called Nemesis, and it's really the only time that Um, Agatha Christie does like a pair of books and that one came out in 1971 which was really towards the end of Christie's career. So um, Jean why don't you give us a brief synopsis in your own words very short of A Caribbean Mystery. Well I'm you know with A Caribbean Mystery I'm especially interested of course in the beginning of it because I really tried to echo the beginning in my own short story. You did uh, it so beautifully. In Marple. (laughs) <laughs> um, so, um, I, yeah, I, I read this um, book again and again when preparing to write my own story to just to try to kind of pick up themes and put Easter eggs into uh, my story so that mm-hmm. the experienced reader will be like, oh, I see that. <laughs> um, but in uh, in A Caribbean Mystery, Miss Marple is staying on this fictional Caribbean island. And when the novel opens, She's talking to an elderly gentleman named Major Palgrave. Mm -hmm. And what I love about this opening scene is that she's kind of bored and she's just half listening. And it's just so, um, I think it's just so Christy and so typical that this is just such a human moment where we have all had this experience where people are talking and kind of droning (laughs) on. And it's just so funny that Miss Marple, who's, you know, an elderly lady herself, is feeling this way. And so she's half listening. But then he starts telling a story about a man who got away with murder. And then she kind of perks up a little bit. And then he offers to show her a picture of the murderer. But just as he's doing that, he looks up, he sees some people nearby, and he changes the subject. And then the next morning, he's found dead in his room. That's right. Uh, And that starts all of the events. Yes. That is a great way to set the stage. And, um, you know, what what follows is kind of a mystery on the island. Um, There are several other murders and... Uh, the, the the island is a fictional island called St. Honoré in the Caribbean. And um, Miss Marple kind of becomes, in in collaboration with this wealthy man who's also visiting the hotel, Jason Raphael, they kind of go towards solving the crime together. And it's a, it's a great collaborative effort of these two elderly, semi-mobile uh, people <laughs> who are not being taken particularly seriously by anybody. <laughs> And um, who have kind of just decided to take justice into their own hands in kind of an interesting way. Um, And 
And it's a, it's a wonderful story. And it's also, I think, a really great example of kind of the Christie Hotel atmosphere, which she always captures really well. She has this particular sense of how people interact in a hotel um, that I always love. I think that's really true. And I um, I think one of the things that drew me to uh, to this book was also just how that international feel, you know, that she's really outside of England. She's yeah. in the tropics. And yet she's so quintessentially herself. Yeah. And that's something that you love about Miss Marple, you yeah. know, and I, I, I just think that's, uh, that it makes the story such a joy to read. Yes. I, I do think there are elements of this book that I find to be a little bit colonialist, the way she talks about mm-hmm. like the locals on the island and um, mm-hmm. and just the kind of the island life itself. Um, how, how do you think as modern readers we should be approaching reading about that and, and integrating it into how we read this story? Well, it always is difficult. Yeah. And I think that it, it's certainly not something that you should gloss over or try right. to ignore. I mean, especially when you return to something that perhaps you read as a child. You yeah. know, when you, I, I think a lot of us read Christy when we were younger mm-hmm. and you, you don't see that kind of thing. You don't notice it. And right. then you read it again. You think, oh, well, okay. Right. Um, I didn't see that. <laughs> I yeah. see that the first time. Um, I think, you know, I, I think you acknowledge it. But I also think that it's it's kind of a tribute to how powerful Agatha Christie's work is that we are still reading her yes. and that we are still talking about her stories. And, you know, every author writes within a particular moment, within a particular cultural context. Um, and it's difficult when they are, you know, by necessity, drawn out of that context and right. read from a different modern perspective. Yes. I think, you know, I, I think that about my own work that mm. sometimes, you know, what, what, what would it be like if someone reads my book in 50 years or a hundred years, mm. will they, for example, find a term that, you know, is offensive that right. I use now and that maybe I did, certainly didn't mean to be offensive, right. but you know, it is of course entirely possible that I will be found offensive at some point in the future, sure. um, or horribly sexist, or horribly racist, or you know. And I think I think that it's it's just something to remember. I mean, in the in the end, I think that there's so much to appreciate in her work, yeah. um, and you know, that's that's what we have to remember. Yeah. I agree with you. I think I think that was so beautifully put and so generously put. And I think my take on it always is that, as you say, you can't gloss over it. You need to integrate it into the way you read. And the more important element for me is simply having it be part of the conversation of how we talk about Agatha, Agatha Christie. Um, I think mm-hmm. pretending it doesn't exist because because these elements are found within I, I find most of her books and certainly all of the books that have international elements. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think it's very hard to just pretend it doesn't exist, but on the other hand, as you say, there's so much there to enjoy and so much that so many people enjoy and, and the characters are so fantastic and we love them so much that, um, if we want to continue reading these books, which I personally do and do endlessly, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. then, then you just have to integrate it as, as part of the way you understand how she was writing and what these books are like and um and take it seriously 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Right, and maybe it's, of course, a part of her style. Yeah. That she, as we were saying earlier, she's a very efficient writer. And she, in order to be that efficient, you need to actually employ stereotypes. And I'm not saying she's stereotypical, but she clearly does, you know, can in a couple of sentences, you know, sketch out a character Mm -hmm. that makes you say, oh, I know exactly what type of character that is. And I can, I think that, you know, she's not writing pages and pages of backstory and character depth and you know this happened in their childhood so in a way because of her streamlined writing style it sets her up for this kind of problem um but one Mm. thing i do love about miss marple and about christie's work is that miss marple is a person is a detective who looks at the little people you know she doesn't overlook the staff she's not impressed by power and money yeah. And that's something I really love in her work. Yes. Yeah. And and in fact, you even brought bring that into your into your story. And I won't like spoil anything, but it's something that I think you brought into your interpretation of Marple or your your kind of reading of Marple, um, that she is someone who notices um everybody and and herself is a person who often goes unnoticed and therefore she kind of has an eye for the unnoticed. That's right. And, you know, I think that trope of the female detective, I, mm-hmm. and I, what I love about her, Miss Marple, is that she's, you know, she is, um, she's the underdog, you know, she's yeah. humble, she's understated, she's invisible. Yeah. And that means that she's not going to come in and overpower the story. She's not going to, you know, bring in the big guns <laughs> like Rambo. No. But she's going to solve it with her. Yeah, she's going to solve it with her intelligence, yeah. with her subtlety, with yeah. her humor. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, Christy really inverts kind of the underdog idea because what makes her an underdog is what makes her so powerful. It's her superpower to be invisible, to be underestimated. Um, People just tell her things because they don't think it really matters if they say anything around her. They don't think she's even really listening. Um, So yeah, so I I love that, and I I think um, and I think Poirot actually falls into that too in some ways. There there are different elements, but I think I think Agatha Christie really likes taking that underdog trope and subverting it, and she does it so well. Um, that you actually feel the power of those characters. And and it's so satisfying, yeah, right? It's, it is. it's just the most satisfying thing when she's kind of babbling on and, you know, the person in the scene is looking bored and then suddenly they're like, 
what did you say? Yeah. And it's just such a, it's always such a fantastic moment. Yes. And uh, and so when I was designing my story, you know, I got, of course, Miss Marple on a, a cruise ship to Hong Kong with a mostly Chinese staff. Yes. And it felt very, you know, true to Miss Marple to have her be the person who took the staff seriously and yes. who spoke to them and asked them for reasons behind certain rituals um, yeah. or, or food or whatever. Yes. And yeah, you have a lovely scene where they're at dinner and she's speaking to one of the um, the wait staff and the, the English people that she's with are kind of like appalled that she would speak to them so casually. Um, and yeah, th- that scene just plays really well because she's so... Um, she really doesn't care what people think in that sense. She's not trying to impress anybody. Yeah, that's the great thing. I think there is always something subversive about her, mm-hmm. you know, that she's not she's not falling into these societal norms of, you know, you're a big, powerful person and therefore um, you're right. In fact, she's always about a kind of you know, feminine intuition that is, you know, the, the kind of the the truth in every situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and of course, I also think that she's quite a physical character in some ways. I think that she's, you know, she's, she can be very active, uh, more so than she may have been portrayed. Yeah. And, and you, I mean, there's a, the beginning of your book, she's waltzing and, um, and, <laughs> yeah. and it's so charming. I think the line you have is she was mildly surprised to find herself waltzing. And I, I, that line just was, it's such a lovely line and it's such a great scene. Um, and it, it really is a nice contrast to the major Palgrave scene because she's having a similar experience where she's talking to an elderly gentleman and only kind of half listening. Um, and she's also wearing her gray lace in both scenes, which I love <laughs> that you, you planted that little Easter egg. Um, but of course, then things kind of diverge. And she's also much more interested in the man she's waltzing with. He's a much more kind of interesting and intriguing character to her and, and much more gentlemanly as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, and of course, you know, I have her waltzing, but they're waltzing sedately in the corner and kind of revolving yeah. like a carousel. Right. So they're not doing, you know, this acrobatic kind of ballroom dancing. No, there's no know, tango happening. <laughs> no, no, there's no lift with Miss Marple in the no, air. No, no. Um, but yeah, but so it was always that kind of line where I thought I can absolutely see Miss Marple waltzing. I mm-hmm. absolutely can see her doing a sedate, very ladylike, elegant waltz. Um, yeah. And, you know, just to have her do things like have dim sum and yeah. doing Tai Chi when she finally gets to Hong Kong was so much fun. Oh, I loved the image of her doing Tai Chi. Um, in the park. And that was that was just so lovely. I mean, and she is enjoying it so much. Um, it's a great scene. Uh, yeah, I, I like I, I wasn't going to put her in the martial arts studio, you know, beating <laughs> someone up. But <laughs> during Tai Chi in the park, absolutely, you can see Miss Marple um, doing that because I think she's actually, she's such a clever character she's yeah. such an independent thinker she is. um and i think it's remarkable that christy created her in that day and age yeah i agree and so i also think it's always interesting when i look at when agatha christie was writing particular books because she really wrote the most marbles towards the end of her career when she was an elderly lady as well 
Um, you know, mm-hmm. she wrote her first mm-hmm. marble in 1930, but she only wrote the second one again in 1942. So the, mm-hmm. she wasn't so focused on that character really during like the big years of her career when she was like pushing out all these Poirots because he was so popular. Um, so mm-hmm. it's always really fascinating to me to look at why maybe she suddenly became more interested and invested in Miss Marple. And I think my personal opinion is that it had a lot to do with her really relating to the character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I think that that seems like that would be a natural reaction. And I mean, you can almost imagine what the publishing conversations were, right? I mean, just to completely fictionalize it. I'm sure they were like, well, Agatha, you know, there's not really a market for an elderly spinster detective. Right. Um, and she's like, you know, and you can see she's like, well, that's what interests me now. And that's what I'm going to write. Yeah, she's so, like, I'm know, an elderly lady. Her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, from a marketing point of view, I'm sure that that was not the direction that they wanted her to go in, but she clearly didn't care. And she, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing. And I think that I would imagine indeed that that had a kind of personal meaning to her. Mm -hmm. I think Ms. Marple is someone who speaks to many people. She certainly spoke to me as a young girl to see this woman who's, you know, independent, not attached to a man mm-hmm. with no real societal power, yeah. actually, yeah. and yet be so triumphant. Yes. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I also feel there are a lot of Poirot books and stories in which you can feel that Christie is kind of mocking him. Or, you know, she. I think <laughs> at some point she got quite sick of this character. And she puts him, th- she sometimes kind of puts him through the ringer a little bit. And she never does that with Miss Marple. I think she has a lo- like a love for Miss Marple that is much more kind of gentle and generous. And um, I think she kind of adores this character. And you can see it in the way she writes her. Yeah, and I think you can also read it in the voice in yeah. the Miss Marple stories yeah. and in the novels. Because there's actually a lot of social commentary. I mean, I realized that yeah, when I, I was agree. trying to mimic that voice. Yeah. That, yeah, It's almost like Jane Austen. You know, there's just mm. all of these little comments about, you know, society and men and what people do and how people are. Um, it's fantastic. I completely agree with you. And I think the Austen comparison is so spot on because it's it's a lot about what domestic life looks like. Um, and kind of women's mm-hmm. interior domestic lives. And I I really, that's such a great comparison. I'd never thought of that. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of triumph of mm-hmm. interiority over exteriority. Yes. It's how I've often seen the Miss Marple books that, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's never some kind of big, showdown with police barging in you know it's it's not that kind of reveal it's not that kind of mystery it's about quiet intelligence and human insight and I think a great deal of compassion Mm -hmm. um that's what solves these mysteries that's what wins in the end absolutely I think that's so spot on and I love that you used the um the kind of trope of being on a cruise ship um can you tell me a little bit more about why you think maybe a cruise is an interesting setting for a mystery? Well, what was fun was that when they, you know, at first um, they asked us to join the collection and there was this whole time when we didn't even know who else had joined, you know, it was all very, very top secret and so on. (laughs) 
And then there came a moment when, okay, they had us, this was the 12, we were the ones who were going to write it. And then they were kind of very, you know, delicately like, um, you know, not that we want to push you and not that we want you to spoil the story, but like, could you give us a very general idea of how you're going to kill everybody off? <laughs> because, because they didn't want us all stabbing them, you know, for right. example. They didn't want 12 stories where, you know, everybody was killed in exactly the same way. Um, right. Yes, you have to diffuse. Right, okay. Right, we, we, we wanted, you know, uh, we wanted a plethora of murder methods. Right, diffusion so, of murder uh, methods, sure. sure. Exactly, exactly. And so, and I think also maybe a little bit of subtle undercurrent was that uh, I think that they also wanted to talk to us and just to make sure that we didn't kind of run amok, you know, they... <laughs> They wanted to. They wanted to make sure that these were really Miss Marple stories and in the Agatha Christie tradition, and they gave us a tremendous amount of freedom. But of course, they didn't know at that point what we would do and how far we would go. And I think they just wanted to, you know, be able to talk to us about it. And so I was. I just had some general thoughts about what to do with her, and I thought, you know, a cruise would be great because a cruise is just something like a train where yeah. you can't get off. Right? Yeah. It's the best thing about it. It's a crucible. It's a kind or the, of or the worst mystery. thing for the murder victims, I guess. <laughs> right, right, right. But so you have this kind of instant tension. Yeah. You have a limited but very intense world yeah. of characters who don't, you know, the worst thing that can happen in the story is to have your characters wandering off. <laughs> and you, know, you, have to, you have to keep them there, right? right I mean, yeah. People have busy lives. Yeah. One's going to a play, one's going to take care of the mother, and like, there right. they all go. So um, a cruise is ideal. You've got them all shut up together. Yeah. And when, um, you know, when you find a body... At first, you think, okay, it was an accident. Of course, when the first body appears, everybody thinks it's an accident. But then when the second body appears, then everybody realizes there's a murderer on board the ship and none of us can get off. And that's, um, that's really fun. Yeah. And I, and I think actually that is replicated. It's not a cruise, but in a Caribbean mystery, it's replicated by being a, it's a hotel. So everyone's kind of enclosed in Mm -hmm. that space and B it's an Island. So you have kind of this double level, the level of enclosure, um, and absolutely, yeah. And I, so I think even though it's not a cruise or a plane or train mystery, it's actually got the same tension built into it, and that's mm-hmm. partly why the story works. I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I know absolutely, and and I and that you know that feeling of everybody kind of knowing each other, yeah. you know, and knowing and not knowing—that's the fun. That there's a lot of gossip, and yeah. I've heard X, Y, and Z about this person, yeah. and it's not someone that you've only seen once; you've seen them a couple of times. But right, there's this kind of you know area where it's the ideal mystery, the ideal mysterious circumstances, mm-hmm. where you know each other, but not that well. Right. It's this kind of um, kind of false feeling of intimacy, where everyone is around each other all the time. So you kind of get a sense of people's habits um, and people's kind of daily routines. And maybe they share a little bit with you. So you feel like you know who they are. But in reality, of course, you don't know anything about them. 
That's right. And I think what's also interesting when you have a lot of people in the same environment for a long time is that you do, in, just what you said, what you said so well, is that you build up this feeling of intimacy and you do start to build a sort of trust, yeah. you know, just from that daily interaction. But then when that goes wrong, that goes very, very wrong. Yes. It certainly does in this case. And, um, but but I, what I actually do like is sometimes Agatha Christie really lays out kind of the groundwork of a friendship. And it's with Miss Marple, it's generally generated through gossip. And she has, right. she has this lovely relationship with uh, Miss Prescott, who is the sister of or the sister of Canon Prescott. They're there on the holiday together. And they mm-hmm. keep they keep trying to have these little gossip sessions and he keeps kind of doing this like righteous thing of like, well, it's not very nice to gossip. And they're like, we're just trying to talk. You know, they spend like half the book just trying to get alone so they can gossip. Um, but it's, it rang so true for me. And it's such a, um, there's a realism to that friendship. And they end up, I know in, in previous or not previous in later books, actually writing to each other. Um, so it is a friendship that holds up, which is quite nice. Yeah, there's a sort of very, um, this, I think there's a great deal of positivity towards other women in this Marvel. Yes. Um, and that's just something so nice. You know, like you said, that power of friendship. And they're just like, they're just waiting for him to go away so they can actually talk to each other. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she forms these kind of real bonds. And yeah. it's, I think there's a kind of generosity of spirit and mm-hmm. warmth. Yes. And Miss Marple, which is part of the reason that people love her and love um, her story so much. Yeah. And and even, I mean, the way she solves this mystery in a Caribbean mystery has a lot to do with her having a lot of empathy and insight into how young women think and how they feel mm-hmm. in relationships. And um, it's something that you know, Mr. Raphael, for example, would not have picked up on. She really has this incredible ability to hone in very quickly on whether someone is kind of in distress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And what I also like about um, a Caribbean mystery is that, you know, there's really a real, like, range of characters, and especially yeah. a female character. Yes. And if you think back to this time period, I mean, how many detective novels have we read where there is one female character mm-hmm. and that is the love interest? Right. And it's, you know, this one dimensional woman who appears for one purpose and is gone. Yeah. And if you compare that to this, yeah. you think there's so many different female characters in this. There's so many different women. And, you know, they run the whole range. Um, of personalities and I think that's something very wonderful. Absolutely. And and in fact, in contrast to the men of this book, you know, the women are kind of interesting and layered and nuanced and the men are kind of well, they're either nasty or they're murderers or they're or they're or they're or they're, or they're oafish or you know, I, I mean, I think the doc, right. the doctor is probably um the most kind of uh kind character, but even he is kind of he just wants to retire in his Caribbean town. He doesn't want to really have to do too much with this. Um, and eventually his conscience kind of pricks him and he, he goes into action. But he's he's really fighting against having to, like, deal with any of this um, once the first murder comes about. 
So I, I, I really right. agree I mean, with you. It's Miss Marple who's the catalyst. Yes. Right? yes. She's actually the one who's getting these men into action. Yes. Or, you know, that the absolutely the wrong thing would have happened. Exactly. Yes, she is exactly. She is the catalyst and and her kind of bringing in all these other women and talking to them, understanding them, having empathy and sympathy for what's what's going on in their lives is how she figures everything out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what I was thinking about when I wrote this story as mm-hmm. well, that I thought yes. yeah, she has to yes. be the one who talks to the different people, who yes. tries to kind of, you know, be the bridge between East and West. And to understand why, you know, the Chinese caretaker in the story who comes under suspicion of poisoning the elderly Chinese gentleman, why she might have been doing the seemingly strange things that she was doing. Um, And, you know, that's the great thing about Ms. Marvel is that she kind of goes everywhere and talks to everyone with her cloak of invisibility. That's right. Yeah. And people are are, um, just will just speak to her. We'll just tell them what's going on in their lives. And they're very open with her because I, she's non-threatening. Right. And she's non-threatening. And the thing I really love about her is she's unshockable. Yes. You know, she's actually, <laughs> she's like, she would be a great therapist. You know, yes. she's somebody you could say anything to. And you know that she would just pour you another cup of tea yes. and think, well, I think maybe we better report this to the police. Yes. Um, that, that's know, exactly right. She's just, yeah, she's just, she's unflappable. She's yeah. got this kind of composure while not being in the least bit cold. That's and I think correct. that's very hard to pull off. That's correct. And I think it might be Murder at the Vicarage where she says this. I can't remember which one, it, which of the marples it is, but there's one of the first books she actually said, my mother always told me that being a lady means you're never shocked. Mm. So it's actually, oh, really, I like that. Yeah, it's really like kind of, an intrinsic part of her character to never be surprised. And she also talks often throughout the books of how she's seen so much of human evil that nothing can surprise her, which is, I mean, she is truly one of the most cynical characters while being so sympathetic (laughs) and generous. She assumes the worst about everybody. And it's actually so funny because um, the detectives who work with her are always kind of shocked by the depravity of her mind. Um, which I love because she's so kind of, you know, she's pink cheeks and fluffy hair. And, and then these things come out of her mouth and these detectives are like, oh, my God, this woman is upsetting. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think it's a testament to how brilliant Christie was as a writer that she yet somehow managed to make Miss Marple incredibly sympathetic. Yes. So on the on one hand, this unflappability, this ability to have seen all types of evil. Mm-hmm. And yet on the other hand, we still, you know, we're rooting for her yes. from beginning to end of every single story. Yeah. I think that's true of, of Caribbean mystery. And I think it's true of your story as well. And and I'm just so grateful that I have gotten the chance to talk with you about about both the Jade Empress, which is in the new Marple book, and also a Caribbean mystery. Thank you so much for being here, Jean. It's really fantastic. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. Uh, where can people find you? If Would you like to be found by the people? And where could they find you? <laughs> yes, I would love to be, find, to be found <laughs> by all of the people. All the people. Um, and uh, all of the people. Um, and, uh, you know, whether they love the story or if they didn't love the story, I'd love to hear their thoughts. You're going to love I the story. In- <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope so. Yeah. I did my best. I mean, I think 
I think all of the writers in this collection, I think we we knew that. We knew that yeah. there might be people who don't want to see this happening. Sure. And you can't be for everyone. But you do hope that you will delight some people and that people should know that it came from a genuine place. I think we all really did our best out of great admiration and love uh, for Miss Marple and for Agatha Christie. But yes, I am on, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And of course, my website, uh, it's all under Jean Kwok, which is just my name. Uh, K-W-O-K is my last name. So. Great. And, and I have to say, having read the Marple book and your story, The Jade Empress, that absolutely comes across that it was done with love and uh, so much knowledge of the character, and uh, I can't say enough good things about it. I think everyone who likes this podcast will definitely love the new Miss Marple stories. So definitely check that out if you haven't already. And we will have in the show notes a link to where you can purchase the book. So thank you again so much for being here, Jean. This has been absolutely delightful. I wish we could talk for another was conservatively 10 hours about this book. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, and um, I hope to speak with you again soon. All right. Take care. You too. Bye, Jean. Thank you to our producer, Kate Cruschel, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. If you want to support this podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at TNMurder. You can rate and review us on iTunes, and you can tell all your friends and even strangers to follow us on your podcast platform of choice. We'll be back in two weeks with The Four Suspects, a story in The Thirteen Problems. You can rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookseller, or if you need to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next week's book can be found in the episode notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We hope you had a bracing dose of both. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.